talk about raw food. That and much more at night this Friday at 7 p.m. Here on KPFA 94.1 FM. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who in light, light them up, boys, there's your picture, drop the shadow, out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is Tuesday, September the 26th. 2006. This coming Sunday, October the 1st, we're having a Poems and Performance for Peace uh, celebration for Gandhi's birthday. It's the first annual Gandhi's birthday. We hope to make this an annual. Arnie Passman has put this all together. And it's going to happen at the south end of the ferry building on the Embarcadero between Market and Mission in San Francisco. Okay, Peace for Keeps invites you to participate in a celebration of Gandhi's birthday. That's Sunday from 1 to 6 o'clock. They put me down for about 5.15. i got to get over there and uh, come up with five minutes of eternal wisdom. Yep. You can always say it in five minutes, Sunday, October 1st, 2006. You can sign up at 1230 at noon if you think that you have five minutes of uh, wisdom or just, what is that, uh, clever, clever notions. October the 2nd is actually Mahatma Gandhi's birth. Uh, uh, let's see, we're going to celebrate peace, love, service, justice, passive resistant, nonviolent, direct action, civil disobedience, anarchism, and bring garlands for the statue and cushions and food to drink and share and all that good stuff. Poets, musicians, and dancers are all invited. That's at the Gandhi statue at the south end of the ferry building on the Embarcadero in San Francisco. It's between Market and Mission. There is a phone number. 415 is the number. 240-0286. I think the secret is just to get there and find Arnie and sign up if you want to read uh, a poem for uh, Bapu. Bapu, our father, Bapu Gandhi. Yes, what would Gandhi do? Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, not quite what Bill Clinton is doing. Bill Clinton's off and running, came on like gangbusters this week on the Fox Network and Hugo Chavez and 
Let's see. Oprah Winfrey has plans for an all-woman radio network. Uh, and the sulfur everywhere, you know, it's just coming in round the doors, choking people. Sulfur, I, I never quite saw George Bush as uh, uh, Beelzebub, but um, I'll talk about that Thursday morning at 8.20. I think I need to uh, save that for Thursday morning. Uh, next week on Tuesday, we start the fundraising marathon, and I will be on that first Tuesday, and then I will be off the air for a bit uh, during marathon. I'll be off until uh, the first Tuesday after Halloween. Uh, Larry Bensky will be using this time every day of the week in order to do election shows. Uh, probably a very good idea right now. Uh, anyway, uh, let's hope we're ready to put a stop to this madness. Uh, what I wanted to tell you about today is an article, first an article in Harper's by Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, notebook, it's under Notebook, The Next War. The Harper's is the one on the stands right now. Um, what is the, it's the current, it's the October issue of Harper's. There's actually a lot of good stuff in here. There's, um, a Blueprint for Leaving Iraq Now by George McGovern and William Polk. We might have a minute to look at that. The Way Out of War, it's called. That's a lengthy article. But Daniel Ellsberg is the one here making a dramatic plea. He's asking the insiders, you know, to come forward and leak the Iran plans. He's talking, folks, about the next war. Now, the truth is... Apparently, apparently, uh, there has been a hold, a hold put on some of the action. Let's see, right. Uh, Seymour Hirsch notes that opposition by the Joint Chiefs in April led to White House withdrawal of the nuclear option. For now, I would say, that's what Daniel Ellsberg says. I mention that because if you're like me, when you read these things, you tend to panic a bit. Uh, Iran is not Iraq. It's, I think, what is it, several times larger, more resistant, and all those things. You know all that. Most of us know all this stuff. The question is, what's going to be done about it? This culture of secrecy is what we're suffering from, and what Daniel Ellsberg has done in this article in Harper's is to ask those in power to come forward to risk their careers, their clearance, uh, perhaps their lives, be willing to go to prison, that kind of thing. And, of course, he's one who knows because uh, he's the one who leaked the Pentagon Papers, but only way, way too late. Uh, let's see. Here's a little bit of what... Daniel Ellsberg says, he says, we face today a crisis similar to those of 1964 and 2002, that is the uh, Tonkin Gulf Resolution and then the uh, uh, Iraq and the weapons of mass destruction nonsense. 
He says, a crisis hidden once again from the public and from most of Congress. Articles by Seymour Hirsch in The New Yorker revealed that as in both those earlier cases, the president secretly directed the completion, though not yet execution, of military operational plans. Not merely hypothetical contingency plans, but constantly updated plans with the movement of forces and high states of readiness for prompt implementation on command, for attacking a country that unless attacked itself poses no threat to the United States. In this case, right, Iran. According to these reports, many high-level officers and government officials are convinced that our president will attempt to bring about regime change in Iran by air attack, that he and the vice president have long been no less committed secretly to doing so than they were to attacking Iraq, and that his secretary of defense is as madly optimistic about the prospects for fast, cheap military success there as he was in Iraq. Okay, it goes on, folks. Reports from CIA officials, uh, contingency planning for large-scale air assault on Iran employing both conventional and tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, several senior Air Force officers involved in the planning were, quote, appalled at the implications of what they're doing, Iran is being set up for an unprovoked nuclear attack, but no one is prepared to damage his career by posing any objection. Now, the trouble is, of course, you see, uh, even the articles by Seymour Hirsch, um, the sources uh, are not named. Uh, now, several of Hirsch's sources have confirmed both the detailed operational planning for use of nuclear weapons against deep underground Iranian installations and military resistance to this prospect, yes. Okay. Several senior officials considered resigning. Ellsberg says simply resigning in silence does not meet moral or political responsibilities of these officials who are rightly appalled by the thrust of secret policy. Okay. Oy vey. Uh, most of the sources are almost sure that um, these attacks would be catastrophic for the Middle East, for the position of the United States in the world, for our troops in Iraq, for the world economy, for the U.S. domestic security, Thus, they are as deeply concerned about these prospects as many other insiders were in the year before the Iraq invasion. That is why, unlike the lead-up to Vietnam or Iraq, some insiders are leaking to reporters. But since these disclosures, so far without documents and without attribution, have not evidently had enough credibility to raise public alarm. The question is whether such officials have yet reached the limit 
of their responsibilities to our country. Now, assuming Hirsch's so far anonymous sources mean what they say, that this is, as one of them puts it, quote, a juggernaut that has to be stopped, unquote. I believe it is time for one or more of them to go beyond fragmentary leaps, unaccompanied by document. That means doing what no other active official or consultant has ever done in a timely way. What neither Richard Clark nor I nor anyone else thought of doing until we were no longer officials, no longer had access to current documents. After bombs had fallen and thousands had died, years into a war, it means going outside executive channels as officials without contemporary access to expose the president's lies and oppose his war policy publicly before the war with unequivocal evidence from inside. Daniel Ellsberg goes on to say, I hope that one or more such persons will make the sober decision, accepting sacrifice of career, clearance, risk of prison, to disclose comprehensive files that convey irrefutably official secret estimates of costs, prospects and dangers of the military plans being considered. What needs disclosure is the full internal controversy, the secret critiques, as well as the arguments and claims of advocates of war and nuclear options. What Daniel Ellsberg here calls the Pentagon Papers of the Middle East. But, he says, unlike in 1971, the ongoing secret debate should be made available before our war in the region expands to include Iran, before the 61-year moratorium on nuclear war is ended violently, to give our democracy a chance to foreclose either of those catastrophes. The personal risks of doing this are very great, yet they are not as great as the risk of bodies and lives we are asking daily of over 130,000 young Americans, many yet to join them in another unjust war. Our country has urgent need for comparable courage for moral and civil courage from its public servants. They owe us the truth before the next war begins, yes. <laughs> As my father used to say, tell the truth and shame the devil. I think he was talking about MacArthur. That was back in World War Two. We know that this script seldom changes that uh, those who are invested in this regime are not likely to go against uh, what they consider their best interests. They have families and homes. Perhaps if they could get a group together, uh, people who would promise to literally take care of their wives and children and their responsibilities, but it's like asking someone to fall on his sword. Uh, in any case, most KPFA listeners 
know all about the history here, uh, about why officials keep silent, and all about the run-up to the 1964 Tonkin Gulf Resolution, which Ellsberg says was almost exactly parallel to the run-up to the nine, to the 2002 Iraq War Resolution. Uh, okay, once again, he says, the president and top cabinet officers consciously deceive Congress and the public about a supposed short-run threat in order to justify and win support for carrying out pre-existing offensive plans against a country that was not a near-term danger to the United States. In both cases, the deception was essential to the political feasibility of the program, precisely because expert opinion inside the government foresaw costs, dangers, and low prospects of success that would have doomed the project politically if there had been truly informed public discussion beforehand. In both cases, that necessary deception could not have succeeded without the obedient silence of hundreds of insiders who knew full well both the deception and the folly of acting upon it. I don't know why I'm footnoting here. This reminds me of a little play by Berthold Brecht we used to do in class. It's about uh, changing the script. It's about the way things are done traditionally and the way they might be done. Uh, The first half of the play is called He Who Says Yes. The second is He Who Says No. In the first half, those who say yes go along with the program. And uh, they let people die, right? It's not a complicated little play. In the second half, they do the same play over again and change their minds. Yes, as Captain Kirk would say, how did I win? I just changed the script. But, of course, that's not something that history... uh, Well, let's see. There must be a case. If anybody out there can think of a time when uh, someone who was, let's call it in power, when an insider blew the whistle. It has happened, but usually people wait until they are retired. Uh, Here is what Daniel Ellsberg says. He says, one insider aware of the Iraq plans and knowledgeable about the inevitably disastrous result of executing those plans was Richard Clark, chief of counterterrorism for George W. Bush and advisor to three presidents before him. He had spent September 11, 2001, in the White House, coordinating the nation's response to the attacks. He reports in his memoir, Against All Enemies, discovering the next morning to his amazement that most discussions, that most discussions there were, were about attacking Iraq. That's the next morning. Clark told Bush and Rumsfeld that Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11 or with its perpetrator, Al-Qaeda. How many, I'm footnoting again here, 
How many thousand times have we heard that? Uh, what is it Virginia Woolf used to say? Yes, we all know the Times knows, but we pretend we don't. Anyway, as Clark said, this is uh, Daniel Ellsberg uh, in his article again. As Clark said to Secretary of State Colin Powell that afternoon, having been attacked by al-Qaeda, for us now to go bombing Iraq in response, which Rumsfeld was already urging, that would be like our invading Mexico after the Japanese attacked us at Pearl Harbor. Actually, Clark foresaw that it would be much worse than that. Attacking Iraq not only would be a crippling distraction from the task of pursuing the real enemy, but would, in fact, aid that enemy. Uh, here is a quote from Richard Clark. Nothing America could have done would have provided al-Qaeda and its new generation of cloned groups a better recruitment device than our unprovoked invasion of an oil-rich Arab country. Ellsberg goes on to say, I single out Clark, by all accounts, among the best of the best of public servants, only because of his unique role in counterterrorism, and because, thanks to his illuminating 2004 memoir, that is the one, Against All Enemies, check it out. Uh, we know his thoughts at that time. And in particular, we know the intensity of his anguish and frustration. Such a memoir allows us, as we read each new revelation, to ask a simple question. What difference might it have made to events if he had told us this at the time? Clark was not, of course, the only one who could have told us or told Congress. We know from other accounts that both of his key judgments, that is, the absence of linkage between al-Qaeda and Saddam, and his correct prediction that attacking Iraq would actually make America less secure and strengthen the broader radical Islamic terrorist movement, was shared by many professionals in the CIA, the State Department, and the military. Yet neither of these crucial expert conclusions was made available to Congress or the public by Clark or anyone else in the 18-month run-up to the war. Even as they heard the President lead the country to the opposite, false impressions toward what these officials saw as a disastrous, unjustified war, they felt obliged to keep their silence, costly as their silence was to their country and its victims. I feel I know their mindset. I had long prized my own identity as a keeper of the President's secrets. In 1964, it never even occurred to me to break the many secrecy agreements I had signed, first in the Marines, at the Rand Corporation, in the Pentagon. Although I already knew the Vietnam War was a mistake and based on lies, my loyalties then were to the Secretary of Defense and the President. 
and to my promises of secrecy on which my own career as a president's man depended. I'm not proud that it took me years of war to awaken to the higher loyalties owed by every government official to the rule of law, to our soldiers in harm's way, to our fellow citizens and explicitly to the Constitution which every one of us had sworn an oath to support and uphold. It took me that long to recognize that the secrecy agreements we had signed frequently conflicted with our oath to uphold the Constitution. Footnote here. It's an amazing thing to me that uh, so many of these insiders seem to think that the president... uh, The president would never contradict the Constitution, that his word is the same as the uh, uh, text of the Constitution. That's utter nonsense, of course. Ellsberg goes on to say that the conflict arose almost daily, unnoticed by me or other officials. Whenever we were secretly aware that the president or other executive officers were lying to or misleading Congress... In giving priority, in effect, to my promise of secrecy, ignoring my constitutional obligation, I was no worse or better than any of my Vietnam-era colleagues or those who later saw the Iraq war approaching and failed to warn anyone outside the executive branch. (laughs) Ironically, Clark told Vanity Fair in 2004 that in his own youth he had ardently protested the complete folly of the Vietnam War and that he wanted to get involved in national security in 1973 as a career so that Vietnam didn't happen again. He is left today with a sense of failure. And yes, he goes on to quote, Clark at length about his uh, failure to have any influence and his um, suspicion that perhaps it is arrogant to think that it is possible to stop a second Vietnam personally. Uh, And then Daniel Ellsberg suggests that it may not be too arrogant to think that speaking out might have some influence, uh, that deliberate deception on the part of the executive branch, uh, might call for uh, an immediate response. Indeed, Uh, he says, my own failure to act in time in 1964 was pointed out to me by Wayne Morse 35 years ago. Morse had been one of only two U.S. senators to vote against the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. In August 64, he believed correctly that President Lyndon Johnson would treat the resolution as a congressional declaration of war. His colleagues accepted White House assurances that the president sought, quote, no wider war and had no intention of expanding hostilities without further consulting them. They believed they were simply expressing bipartisan support for U.S. air attacks on North Vietnam. Robert McNamara told them it was in retaliation for unequivocal, unprovoked attack by North Vietnamese torpedo boats on U.S. destroyers on routine patrol in international waters. Ho, 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 ho. Of course, each of the assurances above had been a false conscious lie. 
that they were lies, though had only been revealed to the public seven years later with the publication of the Pentagon Papers. Several thousand pages of top-secret documents on U.S. decision-making in Vietnam that I released to the press. The very first installment was published by the New York Times on June 13, 1971. It proved the official account of the Tonkin Gulf episode was a deliberate deception. Okay, folks, check out Daniel, X, El, Daniel Ellsberg's um, article, The Next War Notebook. It's in the current Harper's. Uh, also in the current Harper's, you can read A Blueprint for Leaving Iraq Now by George McGovern and William R. Polk, The Way Out of War, a fascinating article with many statistics about how much less expensive it would be to do the right thing. Be back on the air Thursday at 8.20. Till then, go easy. If you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Back by popular demand. Are you ready to take the oath? I am. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. So we elected a government contractor as vice president. So that's page A10, column one. Several U.S. officials, US officials stressed. The U.S. officials said, column five, American officials said. I think the Los Angeles Times should be called U.S. officials say. Helps us physicians treat people, treat patients differently. We'll say, yeah, well, you know, I can see how an emotion can affect health. Because in time, we can, we must persuade this most peculiar administration that they are acting essentially on their own and against all of our history. It's fall, and our next fun drive is around the corner. I'm Amelia Gonzalez, Director of Arts and Humanities, and I'm here to tell you that if you thought you missed anything from our previous fun drive, you can check out your favorite gifts at 